Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. On this week's episode, we're looking at the history of Hadrian's Wall, an enduringly fascinating historical border built during the Roman occupation of Britain around 1,900 years ago. In its finished form, the wall ran for 80 miles, that's Roman miles, from Wall's End near Newcastle to Bowness on Solway beyond Carlisle, separating the Roman occupiers in the south from a group of violent, bloodthirsty barbarians, otherwise known as the Scots, in the north. The history and construction of Hadrian's Wall is the subject of a special feature in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, which is out now in the UK and next month in the US. It's also available to access in full on the PASP website, and more information about that is in this episode's description. The feature has been written by Matt Simons, author and archaeologist, and also editor of one of our sister magazines, Current World Archaeology. Earlier this week, I caught up with Matt to discuss the wall in more depth. Here's our conversation. Okay, um, Matt, thanks very much for joining me on this very warm afternoon. Um, before we talk about Hadrian's Wall itself, I was just thinking it's probably good to get some context. Um, so could we talk about the, the Roman invasion of Britain or invasions of Britain, uh, particularly that of Emperor Claudius in AD 43? Um, why was the island invaded and how committed were the Romans to, to holding it? Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, Callum. And that is a fantastic question. It seems very clear from the surviving sources that we have that it's essentially all a political fix by the Emperor Claudius. He's come to power in somewhat unfortunate ways. His predecessor, uh, the Emperor Gaius, we know him by his nickname Caligula, which amusingly translates to mean something like Little Bootykin, had been assassinated. And so Claudius suddenly found himself as Emperor of the Roman world. But this was a world in which your military credentials were extremely important. And Claudius didn't really have any of those. So what he really needed to shore up his position in Rome was a spectacular military triumph. And Britain presented exactly the sort of target that could deliver that. It had been invaded by Julius Caesar many, many decades before, and it held an important place in the Roman psyche as well. They believed that the world, the inhabited world, was surrounded by an all-encompassing ocean. And this was a place of gods, monsters, dangers and mythical lands. And Britain lay within that realm. So Caesar's invasions had received a rapturous um, reward back in Rome in terms of the huge public profile that his, his invasions got. It's been likened a little bit to a Roman moon landing in terms of how they viewed the world. But perhaps it would be even closer to think of it as more like the D-Day landings on the moon. It had been an audacious military move, and that was exactly the kind of thing that Claudius needed to make sure that he was secure. And so he put together his invasion force. They successfully invaded. They moved up to Camulodunum, modern Colchester, and there Claudius joined them so that he could ensure that all of the all of the rich rewards in terms of public acclaim would rub off on him and he witnessed the capture of the city and he then we're told by the ancient sources hastily headed back to Rome he spent about 16 days in Britain something like that so seen that way it was very much a means to an end it was a means to give Claudius the position that he needed in Rome and after that, well, we know that Claudius's successor Nero 
also was perhaps a little underwhelmed by what Britain had to offer the Roman world. He reportedly harboured reservations about retaining the island, although ultimately he did keep Roman forces there. We know that Britain was rich in minerals and we know that the Romans were very happy to take those minerals and siphon off the wealth they could get from the island. But in terms of whether or not Rome really needed to hold Britain, it's very difficult to see how it could have been a major threat to imperial interests. And it seems very much that the conquest of Britain simply resulted from Claudius needing this political fix in Rome and then his successors having to deal with the situation they found when they came to power. Very good. I like the analogy of D-Day landings on the moon. That's I'd never, never thought about that at all before. Um, and um, obviously, I mean, it wasn't all plain sailing. The, the, the Roman invasions were met with fierce resistance from native Britons, as you could call them, across England and Scotland and Wales. Um, you talk about in the article how the, the invader and the invaded had very different sort of military fighting styles. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about how they differed and, and sort of why the Roman approach was seemingly superior? Well, the Roman army, of course, is still famous for its extraordinary skill when it came to fighting wars. And there is a very good reason for that. In its day, it was an extraordinary fighting force. But like most armies, it had a way that it particularly liked to fight. And in this case, it was as a massed army in a set-piece battle against another massed army on a battlefield. So the main Roman military strength was in its heavy infantry. So the Roman legions was a crack fighting force which would hold a very large number of these this heavy infantry supported by a modest complement of cavalry. But as Rome had expanded, as it had conquered new peoples, so too that provided a new source of military skills. And you see that as the Roman state expands, so too it captures the manpower that lies in these regions. And they're recruited to another branch of the army known as the auxiliaries or the helpers. And they often offered military strengths that perhaps Rome was slightly weaker in. So cavalry in particular were to be found in northwest Europe, in the so-called Celtic areas of Europe. But we also know that Scythians were reputedly extremely skilled bowmen, archers, and so on and so forth. So you have this wonderful and fascinating situation in which the helpers, the people recruited to the auxiliaries, are both one of the spoils of war and also the engine that drives further expansion. And all of these soldiers would be trained to fight in formation on a battlefield. So you'd have individual units which would be expected to come together to form an army on that battlefield. And that was a form of fighting that the Roman army was extraordinarily skilled at. And indeed, when we look at the conquest of Britain, we do tend to focus on the battles. Generally speaking, we don't have as much information about them as we might like, but events such as the final battle of the Boudican Revolt in AD 61, or the Battle of Mons Graupius on the fringe of the Scottish Highlands in AD 84. And there we see the Britons doing their best to fight against prepared Roman armies in the field. And the casualties that the Britons receive is absolutely staggering in these kinds of engagements. The one from the Boudican Revolt, that final battle of the Boudican Revolt, we're told there's a kill ratio of 200 Britons for every one Roman soldier that was killed, which is 
an absolutely mind-blowing statistic. It is a horrifying indication of the level of slaughter that must have played out that day. And even allowing for significant Roman exaggeration, it points to extraordinarily high casualties among the Britons. And this sort of report of their fighting has seen the Britons referred to as military inept or militarily inept or practicing some kind of primitive warfare. And we're very much given to believe that they were second rate at best. But at this point, it's worth reflecting that all of the information, all of the written accounts that we have of combat between Britons and Romans was written from the Roman perspective. So we're lacking the Britons' take on exactly what they made of all of this. But there are other sources available to us, the archaeology in particular, and recent study of this has suggested that the Britons preferred a very different form of warfare. They preferred to fight quickly, to be lightly armoured, to be highly mobile, to spring ambushes and surprise attacks rather than fight a prepared foe on a battlefield. And in this regard, what we might think of today as guerrilla warfare, they appear to have been very, very successful. And indeed, when you look back at the Roman texts, they are peppered with examples of Britons springing ambushes and then fleeing the scene when a large number of reinforcements turns up. Now, this is always presented very much as a Roman victory, as a case of the Britons managed to get a small a small surprise ambush and are then driven off by the superior forces. But if we look at examples of guerrilla warfare in more recent centuries, in fact, that is, generally speaking, a crucial part of the technique. You spring a surprise attack against your enemies and then you escape before their superior military strength can be mobilised against you. So far from the enemies fleeing, this attempt to get away from the battlefield without incurring many losses is almost certainly a crucial part of their technique. And we can see from some of the attacks that it's very, very likely that the Britons are managing to take out more Roman soldiers in this way than they did in the set-piece battles at Mons Graupius and Boudicca. So it's two very, very different forms of warfare, almost a chalk and cheese approach, really. One group that likes to fight its battles on the battlefield and another group that prefers to spring surprise attacks and then to get out before a larger force can be mobilised against it. And there are suggestions in the archaeology that the Roman army had to rethink how it was deploying its forces in order to combat this very, very different form of warfare, something that it was far from familiar with. Because another thing that people can think about guerrilla warfare is essentially it's the same as full-scale warfare, just slightly smaller scale. But in fact, it's a very, very different form of fighting. And there's a, a report by a presidential committee looking into the situation in Vietnam in 1959, which makes this particularly clear. It talks about how, if you're going to tackle guerrillas, you need widespread deployment rather than concentration. You need small, mobile, lightly equipped units. You need different weapons, command systems, communications and logistics. So while we typically tend to see the Britons as offering very little in terms of real military resistance to Rome, in fact, their tactics could easily have taken the trained Roman forces very much out of their comfort zone. 
So yes, Mons Graupius in um, AD 84, you have the Caledonian Rebellion, which is decisively defeated at that point. Um, but you move on to sort of 40 years later, the, the beginning of Emperor Hadrian's reign, we have these reports that the Britons could not be kept under Roman sway, that you know rebellions are sort of sparking up again all over the place. Uh, what was going on here and, and how did this sort of precipitate the construction of the wall? It's an excellent question. And to be completely candid, there is no one answer to this. But my own view is that what we're seeing again is an expression of the difficulties that come with trying to defeat enemies who are using guerrilla tactics. So the Battle of Mons Graupius from the Roman perspective was seen as very much the decisive victory. This was the moment when Britain was conquered. The Caledonians had been defeated, the entrance to the highlands was open, and all that Rome needed to do was occupy the rest of the island. Now, how easy that would have proven in practice, of course, is a very different question. But shortly after this victory, within a matter of years, trouble on the Danube saw the withdrawal of a substantial amount of the Roman army in Britain, probably about a quarter of its fighting strength. And at that point, this force that thought that it had just won a decisive victory, that was seemingly preparing for an advance up into the highlands, suddenly found itself propelled into a retreat instead. And it's very clear that initially they were hoping not to abandon the entirety of Scotland. We can see that they moved back from their positions on the highlands to a line anchored on Newstead on the Tweed in southern Scotland. And perhaps the Roman army is hoping that, given time, those troops that were withdrawn to the Danube will come back and the advance can continue. But we now know that that was not to be the case. And around AD 105 or so, so we're looking at about 20 years now after the Battle of Mons Graupius, the Roman army is reconfiguring itself on a key part of northern England, a place known as the Tyne-Solway Isthmus, which is an area where the land narrows abruptly, creating a handy choke point in the landscape. There'd been forts in this area for, I guess, what are we looking at, almost 50 years by this point. But we see a more sophisticated approach to military control at the beginning of the second century. We're looking at fortlets and towers being built alongside much larger forts, which would have created a much intri more intricate form of military control. So when we think about the beginnings, the origins, the lead up to Hadrian's Wall, we have to imagine that the Roman army didn't just advance north to the Hadrian's Wall line, stop and build it. Instead, the construction of Hadrian's Wall is set against the backdrop of the army being forced to relinquish territory further to the north. Now, more recent commentators on guerrilla warfare, in, particularly, in particular a British army officer by the name of C. E. Caldwell, who was writing in the late 19th century, has remarked that the worst thing you can possibly do when fighting guerrillas is to abandon the initiative, that you have to keep advancing. So the very act of the Roman army being forced to reverse, being forced to surrender territory, would have provided succour to anyone or any groups that hoped to force the Roman army further south and further out of Britain. That may have been a factor. It may not. We, we simply don't know. But what we can be certain of from numerous different sources is that there was significant trouble in Britain during Hadrian's reign and there were significant military casualties 
as well. So we can be absolutely confident that the lead up to the construction of Hadrian's Wall involved significant fighting. Unfortunately, we don't have the kind of ancient historical sources that we have to tell us about the Boudican Revolt or Mons Graupius. So we're forced to try and reconstruct what happened from a patchwork of different sources. But one very interesting set of material is a series of documents that have been excavated from a Roman fort at Vindolanda, which was built before Hadrian's Wall was constructed and lies just a little to the south of it. And a report from there, which dates to around the end of the first century AD, so about the time that this withdrawal is happening, gives us what seems to be an account of the Britons' tactics in the area. And it tells us the Britons are unprotected by armour. There are very many cavalry. The cavalry do not use swords, nor do the wretched Britons mount in order to throw javelins. So this seems to be an excellent fit with this idea of mobile, fast-moving Britons that are elusive and hard to fight that we seem to be getting hints of elsewhere in Britain. So it suggests very much that this form of guerrilla warfare was also a problem for the Roman army in exactly the area where Hadrian's Wall was going to be built. Something I hadn't appreciated before was that the wall, you could consider the wall to be part of a sort of wider network of frontiers established by the uh, the Romans, sort of bordering the outer edges of their empire. But it was a lot grander than other borders in Germany, for example, and obviously completely unlike, you know, there'd never been anything like it in Britain before. Um, can you tell us a bit about its sort of construction and its day-to-day operation? You're absolutely right. The, the scale of Hadrian's Wall is significant. But the crucial question, the million dollar question for scholars studying this subject is exactly what this significance is. So we have this grand wall with a ditch to the north, at least stretches where the Roman equivalent of barbed wire, nasty sharp spikes have been constructed on the shelf of land between the ditch and the wall curtain itself. For most of its length, a thick stone wall, probably rising about 4.2 metres to wall walk height. And then in its finished form to the south, a huge earthwork known as the vallum, which consists of about two mounds and then a very wide ditch in the centre. So in and of itself, we're talking about an absolutely huge structure. And if you compare that with the Roman frontier, which also dates to Hadrian's time in Upper Germany, there the running barrier seems to be a stout timber palisade, probably about three metres high. And that's all. So while the the barrier in Germany would still be an appreciable obstacle, it is clearly on a completely different scale to what we're seeing on Hadrian's Wall. And there have been various different explanations for this over the years. One is that we should not be imagining Hadrian's Wall as serving any kind of practical purpose at all, but this is simply a grandiose piece of imperial rhetoric, which serves only to show the might of Rome, but doesn't serve any kind of useful purpose beyond that. Others have suggested that Hadrian's Wall was designed to regulate the peaceful movement of people, that this was a place where peaceful intentions could be ascertained and taxes could be extracted as people moved north and south across the line of the wall. And another popular viewpoint is that the wall served as a full-blown military stop line, that this was something that was capable of repulsing a barbarian invasion. So really, these different interpretations pretty much span the gamut of possible answers, going all the way from it serving no practical purpose at all to it being a means to 
prevent a full-blown barbarian invasion. The Romans themselves were extremely coy on this. It's worth remembering that there is only one Roman statement on what Hadrian's Wall was intended to do. And that tells us simply that Hadrian was the first to build a wall 80 miles in length to separate the barbarians from the Romans. So it really all hinges on this word separate, what is meant by separation. And of course, the modern world reminds us that this can take very different forms. You can have borders which are extremely easy to cross, almost invisible in the landscape, and you have others which are designed to prevent almost all movement across them at all. Which one was Hadrian's Wall? And to try and get a sense of that, we really need to look at the archaeology. And here, the way in which Hadrian's Wall was designed, the way in which it changed over time, is, I think, probably likely to give us some sort of an idea of what the Roman army had in mind. There are two main plans for Hadrian's Wall, and the initial idea is extremely interesting. At that point, you have that thick curtain wall. So, as I say, a huge and impressive obstacle in the landscape, but one that would have been comparatively lightly manned. So far as we can tell, there would have been a cordon of mile castles. These are small Roman fortifications known elsewhere as fortlets. And as the name suggests, they are approximately one Roman mile apart. And then between each pair of mile castles, you would generally find two turrets, which were at intervals of about a third of a Roman mile. So this means that all the way along the line of the wall, you would have an observation or a manned point approximately every 495 metres. It is worth stressing that nothing even remotely on this scale had ever been seen in Britain before. It was a surveillance system on a scale that would have been sure to send a shiver down the spine of any Iron Age Orwell. But the number of soldiers in it would have probably been very, very low indeed. The Mile Castles probably held a maximum of about 32 soldiers, and it's quite possible that those soldiers were also manning the adjacent towers as well. In which case, you're looking at a garrison of about, well, less than 3,000 soldiers for the entire wall, and you're looking at a garrison of approximately 32 Roman soldiers for every mile of the curtain. So while you could make a good stab at securing the wall line with that number of forces, it's very difficult to see how they could prevent a barbarian invasion or something on that scale. At the same time, you're looking at something that is probably excessive in terms of scale to just regulate the peaceful movement of people. If you needed something like Hadrian's Wall to regulate the peaceful movement of people, that suggests that that timber palisade on Germany was inadequate to regulate the peaceful movement of people. So again, this encourages us, I think, to look at a level of threat that lies somewhere between peaceful movement of people on one hand and full-blown barbarian armies on the other. And that brings us back to that form of guerrilla warfare. We have documents from Egypt which suggest that Roman forces manning fortifications similar in size to the Mile Castles in the Egyptian desert could be tackling enemies of about 60 or so people. So that gives you, I think, a sense of the kind of threat that you could be dealing with on the line of Hadrian's Wall itself. And that would seem to me to fit very, very nicely with this idea of a desire to combat small mobile groups, which are springing surprise attacks on Roman soldiers while they are vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, erecting a giant wall, it's, it's obviously going to cause a bit of disturbance 
Yes, and um, you do say that um, the plan for the wall was altered significantly during its construction. Um, do we know why this was the case? Again, it's a case of inferring from the archaeology, but you're right, there is a massive change of plan while construction is underway. And I think you've probably hit the nail on the head when you say that building a massive wall like that is going to cause a certain degree of disturbance. We have to remember that Hadrian's Wall was not built in some kind of empty wilderness. It is increasingly apparent that long stretches of Hadrian's Wall ran straight through what had previously been well-populated and long-lived farming communities. So we're looking at populations of thousands and probably tens of thousands of people who were living in the direct hinterland of Hadrian's Wall when it was constructed, and indeed whose families have been living there probably for centuries. So this is an area where you would have had long established modes of movement through the, through the landscape. People traveling for markets or as seasonal labor, envoys, people moving for religious reasons. There would have been an entire religious landscape, a whole area of belief woven into the various key points of the landscape and any number of other reasons why people would have been moving around this area. So if you run a giant wall unilaterally through a previously open landscape of that nature, you are going to be posing a threat to a whole range of existing livelihoods. And so it seems very likely that there would have been a negative reaction once people on the ground realised what was afoot. And certainly, if we look at the way in which Hadrian's Wall changed while construction was underway, it would fit with the idea that the expected level of resistance in the area proved to be rather optimistic. So the most eye-catching change is that rather than having just those mile castles and turrets along the line of the wall, they added a whole series of auxiliary forts as well. And these are much larger bases for entire Roman military units. So you would be looking at hundreds of soldiers garrisoned in each of these different posts. If you remember that estimate, that upper level of probably 3,000 or so soldiers along the line of Hadrian's Wall in its first iteration, when we get this new addition of the forts, it looks as though we're looking at an increase then, taking us up to at least 9,000 soldiers on the wall or in the immediate vicinity of it. And these forts would have been excellent as springboards to project serious military strength. So it suggests that you're looking at a situation in which they suddenly have to deal with a threat that is larger than, say, 60 or so people forming a band which they're trying to keep away from the wall line, something that was capable instead of dealing with much more significant resistance. And this is also when that curious earthwork, the vallum, is added to the equation. As I say that lay to the south of the curtain wall, so that is the direction of the Roman province, supposedly friendly territory. So we have these forts on the line of the wall, and they look as though they're positioned primarily to be able to project Roman military power to the north of the wall. And we have the vallum to the south. It's a unique feature. We don't know of anything like this on any other Roman frontier, which does make it quite difficult to try and establish exactly what it was it was designed to do. But very, very clearly, it makes it much harder to approach the wall from the south. So taken together, this suggests problems to both the north and the south. And it seems very likely that the simplest explanation is that this sudden addition 
to the defensive elements of the wall and this sudden addition of the number of soldiers could be tied to the level of local resistance that the wall created, that implementing it as a security feature to try and clamp down on one one form of warfare galvanised resistance and created a much more serious military situation for the Roman army. I would be interested to know, because just briefly, sort of what, what happened to the wall longer term? Did it did it just sort of slowly fizzle out? And obviously the Roman invasion has rolled back and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, over the course of the centuries, what happened to it? It's another excellent question. And the answer is that the wall continues to change. So we have this significant alteration during the construction phase itself. You have the addition of the forts and the vallum before construction of the wall was completed. Now, to my mind, this tells us that we can eliminate that idea of the wall being a piece of imperial rhetoric. Because if it was simply a statement of Roman power, if it had no practical purpose, there would be no need to refine it in this way. And yet we can pick up in the construction period and then in the decades afterwards, a whole series of changes which seem to make the wall more effective, more efficient, and indeed change it to the changing nature of life in the hinterland of the wall. Now, it seems to me that you cannot build something like Hadrian's Wall and just expect life in the area to go on as normal. You suddenly have these 9,000 soldiers in the area, which previously were not there. You need to be able to supply them. You need to be able to give them a base. You need to be able to have a logistics to keep the wall itself functioning. You have to keep it operational. So there is a whole level of different changes that come with the construction of Hadrian's Wall. One very significant apparent impact comes very, very early, and it concerns one of those settled farming communities lying to the north of Hadrian's Wall, on well, in the northeast, in an area known as the Northumberland Coastal Plain. And there we have this farming community that seemingly lasted for centuries, which suddenly disappears, collapses at around the time that Hadrian's Wall is constructed. So there is a really strong probability that what happens there can in some way be linked to the creation of Hadrian's Wall. So that's just one way in which life in the immediate vicinity of the wall would have changed surely as a consequence of Hadrian's Wall. And it seems that the wall, if we want to believe that it could have acted as a means to clamp down on guerrilla warfare, and it would have brought two very useful elements to the table for any group trying to do that. One is that it would have made it very difficult for guerrilla forces to move in and out of the Roman province at will. It becomes very, very difficult to defeat these groups if they can move away from the area that the regular military controls into safe havens. So the wall would have prevented easy movement in and out of the province. And it would also have made it very, very hard for northern sponsors to supply material or indeed extra manpower to groups within the province that were resisting Rome. So it could have served a very practical purpose there. And it does look as though over time, the threat changes. If we imagine that surveillance system of mile castles and turrets as being a very convenient way of minimising the opportunities for people to sneak across Hadrian's Wall easily, that priority seems to shift. 
because at some point around the end of maybe the second century AD or probably more likely in the early third century AD, a huge number of the turrets are demolished. And that significantly reduces the surveillance coverage along the line of Hadrian's Wall. So that suggests that small groups nipping across the wall was simply no longer such a concern. And there are many different examples of ways in which the wall is changed over time, seemingly to adjust it to changes in the prevailing military situation. But throughout all of this, it still soaked up a huge amount of Roman manpower, and it would have been a significant task to keep the physical structure maintained. So the fact that so many subsequent emperors do keep the wall manned, they do keep it maintained, it suggests that, again, this has to be doing something practical. They simply wouldn't have bothered if it was just a hollow statement of Roman power. So what I think we see and what I think the archaeology is strongly in favour of is the construction of the wall itself, changing the nature of life in its shadow, and then the wall itself having to be changed in turn because precisely because the nature of threat, the way that things are happening nearby is changing as well. And I think we can trace that story pretty much the entire way through the period of Roman control of Britain. Um, thank you so much for talking to me, Matt. I know you've taken time out from your holiday <laughs> just, just to chat uh, Hadrian's Wall, but I appreciate it. It's been so interesting. So thank you. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Matt Simons talking to me there. And don't forget you can read his article on Hadrian's Wall in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, as well as online at the PAST website. More information about that is in this episode's description. Matt's book on the topic, Hadrian's Wall, Creating Division, was published by Bloomsbury in 2021, and is available to buy via a link in the description. That's all for this week. Please rate and subscribe, and thanks very much for listening.